Well, good morning. For uh, well over a decade, uh, every time I got up to preach, uh, I would start out by saying, uh, good morning, thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. Because that was our reality. Um, And we would go in and we were thankful for that partnership and continue to be to this day. And we would set up in a gym and do that. And then one year ago today, um, I got to stand up, uh, very confused because there were no basketball hoops or anything around and be like, thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary, into this space. And so I just want to give praise to God for his provision for one one year anniversary of of having uh, this as a new church home. So we give all praise to God and we thank the people as well of Altamont Chapel for their graciousness and welcoming us in and this this partnership that we've been able to have. And so hopefully you got to participate. If you rolled up and you're like, oh, maybe you're new and you're like, cool, they do balloons and donuts every week, maybe. Um, All right, but uh, we are just extremely grateful that you're here and we get to celebrate together. So thank you for bringing the church into this space. Thank you for bringing the church into your home if you're gathered for Crosspoint at home. Wherever you happen to be, the church is the people of God sent on the mission of God. And I get to open up God's word with you all this morning. It's my privilege and joy to do that. And if I've never had the chance to meet you, my name is Jamie, and I get to serve here as one of the pastors. And so this morning, we are continuing this series through the life of this man named Abraham. And at this point in the story, he goes by Abram, and God's going to change his name, but right now he's Abram, all right? Um, And this series, we're focused on what is the call for those of us that would call ourselves Christians, those of us that are followers of Jesus, the call, and really it's the call for everybody, all right, is to love God. Like that's the thing in life, to love God with our heart and our soul, our mind, our strength, like all of who we are. And so we're looking at the life of this man named Abraham sort of as this field guide, all right? Doesn't give us every last instruction. We're not gonna turn to Genesis 14 this morning and you're not gonna find like, maybe you're faced with some decision like, should I take this job or should I do this or that? You're not gonna find that level of specificity. But you will see principles and things that orient us like a compass or a field guide to know on this journey, what does it look like? What should we be paying attention to in regards to loving God? And the life of Abraham showcases that for us. Sometimes, as we'll see today, in some beautiful, like, just this beautiful devotion to following God. And in other times, we see, oh yeah, don't do that. Don't follow Abraham. Because ultimately, he is an imperfect man. There is one perfect man. There's one person that's perfect that we are to follow, and it's Jesus. And hopefully we will see that in this text. This ancient text written thousands of years ago, the book of Genesis, is going to point us to Jesus. Like, that is the storyline of the scriptures. My job today is to point you to Jesus, and it's a great privilege to do that. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14 this morning, so I want you to follow along with this. You don't need to hear my thoughts and opinions. You need to hear from God through his word. He has spoken to us. His word is living and active. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. Get an app on your phone. Turn there. There are pew Bibles uh, in the backs of the the pew. You can grab one of those and hold it really close because this font is very small. But um, you uh, can follow along there. Or on your phone, go to cplife.church. Use that link. It'll pull up a page and you'll see something that says sermon notes. Click there. You'll see the text that we're in this morning as well as anything I put up on the screen will be listed there, and there's some space to take notes. So cplife.church. By way of preface, a little bit of a warning of sorts, uh, Genesis 14. Um, I'm going to read all of it, and then we'll make our way through these sections. The first number of verses, you're going to be like, dude, what's going on? 
At least that was my response as I was studying that this week. I'm trying to keep track of the names, the names that I can barely pronounce, so I will say them fast and quickly and loudly and confidently so that you don't actually notice that I really don't know how to pronounce any of these things, right? Um, uh, and then also in that, we're going to see like lots of like geographic locations that unless you're really familiar with that part of the world in ancient times, it's gonna be like, wait, what? I feel like I need like this massive chart to be like, well, this person's here and this king's fighting this, but big picture, just sort of zoom out and know this. There's a battle that's taking place between these ancient kings, these rival kingdoms, and there's some alliances that are formed, all right, and others that fight against it. But all of it eventually is going to crescendo in, in getting very specific to our story that we've been following. So yes, pay attention to all of this, but certainly we're going to zero in on something that happens to Abram's nephew, whose name is Lot, that we've been introduced to, and Lot is going to be captured, all right? So spoiler alert, he gets captured. That's where this is going. And how is Abram going to respond? But let's read all of this. This is God's word, even the parts of it that I struggle to pronounce. But here we go. Genesis 14. In those days, King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Cato Lamer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim waged war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, and King Shemaber of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Tracking, right? Perfectly clear at this point, right? All of these, verse 3, came as allies to the Siddim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. And they were subject to Cato Lammer for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So in the 14th year, Cato Lammer and the kings who were with them came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Amim and Shava, Kirathaim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Perfectly clear at this point. Then they came back to invade En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in the Hazan Tamar. Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they lined up for battle in the Sidon Valley against King Ketelammer of Elam, King Tidal of Goim, King Amraphel of Shinar, and King Arioch of Elisar. Four kings against five. And now the Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. And the four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. And they, took, and they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. Verse 13, one of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eschol and the brother of Anir. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and the servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. Now verse 17 after Abram returned from defeating King, defeating Cato-Lamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shavah Valley, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. And he blessed him and he said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people 
but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so that you can never say, quote, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten, but as for the share of the men who came with me, Anur, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can take their share. Let's close in prayer. Okay, um, so this text, right? Like what in the world, like what is happening here? I mean, all of these names and all of this. Now, again, I think we just have to zoom out for a moment. Let's remember the theme even of this overall series. There's something in here that's gonna teach us about what it means to love God faithfully. We're gonna see that. We see that it's here in this text. And so one of the things that I want us to wrestle through, all right, just kind of keep these two things in mind, overall about loving God, and then in particular, one of the things we're seeing is, oh, one of the ways that we love God is by actually loving our neighbor. Like there's something that's happening with Abram and pursuing Lot and to bring about this rescue that ultimately is directed towards the love of God. And so it causes us, I think it should cause us to ask this question as a church community. What if we were known as a blessing to our community, like known and experienced that people who don't believe what you believe, who may differ with you theologically, they might not make any claim to be a follower of Jesus, but if we as a church, as the people of God, were known and experienced as a blessing to our community, like in this time and in this place, with all the confusion, all the chaos that's swirling about, that people might look and say, man, I, I don't get those people. They don't make any sense to me. I, I don't buy into what they're, they're teaching or what they believe. But I'm actually thankful they're here for the ways that they serve the community. They serve the schools. They serve those that are the marginalized, those that are overlooked. How amazing would that be? And then further with this, one of the things that's helpful when you're reading an ancient text like the book of Genesis is there's intentionality with everything. Moses is the one under the inspiration of God's spirit who's pen, penning this, right? He's writing this history of God's people. And it's meant to be an encouragement so that the people that he's leading would remember, hey, God's always been faithful. So whatever you're facing, just know this, like God is with you. And one of the ways they drive home points is through repetition. And so there is a word that as I read through that, that is used 29 times, if I counted correctly, 29 times in Genesis chapter 14. 29 times, there's a word. So if a word is used that many times in a relatively short portion of the scriptures, like I think we're supposed to pay attention to it. And the word is king or kings. I mean, every sentence that goes by is like, and then this king, and then the same king's named again. It's like, yeah, we get it, he's a king. But all of this, if we're gonna think about being a blessing to our community, about loving God by loving our neighbor, we have to have a right understanding of, hey, where is our ultimate allegiance? Who is the true king? So as we kind of zoom out and you're hearing about this ancient battle that took place with a bunch of names that we have trouble pronouncing and places that we don't exactly know where they are, if we just step back from it, it's ultimately about who's the real king, who's ruling and reigning. And what does a glad like submission and allegiance to that king look like? What does it look like to love that king? So with that, I want to look at, in these opening verses, I won't read through verses 1 to 13 again, but I put before you this. There is this distinct contrast that we'll see. And we're going to see Lot contrasted with this man, Abram, okay? 
And this we have to pay attention to because if we don't understand this contrast, these kind of two different movements that are taking place, I don't think then we'll have a clear understanding of even what Abram's called into, what he's walking away from, like how costly his actions are. And so at the end of the section, in verse 12, we read this. The four kings took all the, the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went on. And they also took Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. So if you were here these last couple of weeks, you know that after being miraculously rescued and delivered from Egypt, where Abram was not living as a man following God, and God continues to pursue him, is gracious to him. There's this incredible flourishing that takes place as they return to the promised land, all right? And Abram and Lot are together, and they actually have such an abundance of possessions that they don't know where it's all to go, which I'm sure is your problem as well, right? It's like, what do we do with all this stuff? And so um, at, the, at the end of this kind of account, Abram is like, listen, even though Abram, was, it was rightfully his to pick where he wanted to go, his choice of the land, he says to Lot, to his nephew, hey, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. I don't want there to be quarreling. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Like, we're, we're good, man. Just you pick. And Lot sees through just the eyes of just the world, of the culture, of the flesh. It's like, oh, that land. That land's flourishing. That land has abundant water supply. It seems like a great place to be. And he chooses this area that's around Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what the author is making clear to us, what God is making clear to us at this point is that decision's not working out too well. Because he is captured at this point. Like, there's this downward movement, like this downward descent, this spiral. Like, if we look back at verse 13, in chapter 13, verse 11, it says that Lot chooses the area near Sodom. And then after choosing it, he camps near it. So he's not quite in the city, but by the time we get to chapter 14, it tells us that he was living in Sodom. Which, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, and we'll see this later in the book of Genesis, that's not where you want to be. It's not a place that would be following the one true God, the one true king. And so there's this downward movement. So that's how we have to picture this, right? And now Lot has been captured. Lot's a prisoner of war. He's been taken in in this battle. And it's like, what's gonna happen to him? Now contrast that with this. Here's what we read in verse 13, all right? There's sort of this movement. And it's not Abram climbing this, all right? This is God placing him in a spot of blessing. So there's this movement but be very careful. It's not because Abram's amazing and he climbed his way out of this, you know, out of this pit that he was in. It's like, no, no, God met him. God delivered him. God did it. God's the active agent. But he's in a spot of blessing. It says one of the survivors then, all right, so somebody escapes this battle, came and told Abram the Hebrew. So it's this way of telling us. It's the first time that distinction shows up. Like God's people, the Hebrews, the Jews, told Abram the Hebrew who lived near the oaks, belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eschol and the brother of Anir, they were bound by a treaty with Abram. A couple things you see highlighted there, all right? One, it's just always helpful to pay attention to, repeated words, themes, trees, the oaks of Mamre, all right? We know that Abram went to that spot. He built an altar there, which typically those would be built on the high places. So the picture here is there's an altar. It's where you go to enjoy like the presence of God, there's the oaks of Mamre. So you picture this. This man escapes and he finds Abram. Abram is up on this hillside. He's got the altar that he's built there. He's living under the oaks of Mamre. He's chilling out under the shade. He's ordering another drink. I don't know what he's doing, right? He's just like hanging out there, all right? And he is living like his best life. I mean, this is a picture of ultimate flourishing. 
It tells us that Amre, or Mamre, um, this Amorite, his brothers, Eskol, which if you do like a word study on that, I heard one theologian reference this and start digging into it a bit, literally means grape cluster. I mean, where wine would come from. I mean, so it's literally like, there he is, hillside, altar of God, living under the, the shade, just chilling out, looking out. He's not involved in this battle, and he's next to a man named Grape Cluster Man, right? I mean, like, this is a good life. And then it tells us this, they were bound by a treaty with Abram. So if you know this story, and if not, if you're not familiar, it's a quick recap. When God calls Abram, he says, I'm gonna make you into a great nation, as of yet, Abram and his wife do not have any children. So how is this going to take place? That's where we'll continue in this story. But he also says, I'm going to bless you, not so that it would terminate with you, not so you can sit on the hillside under the oaks of Mamre and just chill out by the pool kind of image, right? But rather, you're blessed so that you would be a blessing to other people. You will actually bless all of the nations. And now, in this little, like, we get this little snapshot, it tells us this, Mamre the Amorite, is he a Hebrew? Is he part of God's people? No. But these Amorites have looked out and they said, oh, there's something about Abram, something about who he is. They want to covenant themselves with him. They want to be bound to him. They're like, I'm hitching myself to this man, Abram. So Abram already is beginning to live out by God's grace, being a blessing to the nations. So when this man who escapes runs up, he finds Abram in the great place of just blessing. I mean, it's this little snapshot, almost like of Eden. He's got the trees, he's got the great cluster man, right? He's got all of the, these things. And then even those folks that are not the people of God, not the Hebrews, have bound themselves. Because they're like, when we're near Abram, man, there's blessing. So that's the contrast, okay? Now, if I'm Abram, all right, I'm like, it's good life right? Like, I don't want to leave this, all right? I don't know how this is all going to play out, but this is the place of comfort. But Abram knows if I'm going to love God, if I'm going to be obedient to him, I'm not called to comfort. I'm called to this radical commitment to follow this God wherever he would take me. And so that's what we see in verses 14 to 16. So let me read this again. It says, when Abram, it tells us, heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men. So apparently he's ready. I mean, he's a smart dude. He's like, hey, there's, there's wars and there's all these battles that take place. So he's got in his household 300 highly skilled trained assassins, basically is what he's got, right? Um, and sort of this guerrilla warfare that's getting ready to take place. These men born in his household, they went in pursuit as far as Dan and his servants deployed against them by night. Like it's this sneak attack when the enemy is not expecting it, all right? He defeated them, pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus, and then he brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. So one of the things here in this series we're looking at are repeated themes of what does it look like to love God. And one of those is, being loyal to God even when it costs you. And we're seeing some elements of that. And one of the things in the introduction to this series that I put before you is that one of the ways we see Abram loving God is this, that he would be somebody that seeks justice. Do what's right and set things right. And so Abram, from the place of blessing, perched atop that hill, oaks of Mamre, living this good life, is willing, out of a love and devotion to God, to say, 
something's not right. My nephew Lot has been taken and I'm going to go after him. Now, these particulars, I understand, right? This is thousands of years ago. They are gonna be different for, okay, what does it look like for you and me? You know, do we like, okay, do I got a, do I got a relative somewhere that's been taken captive? I'm going on a rescue mission this week. I mean, maybe that's your thing, but more than likely that exact scenario is not playing out. But we are called to look out into the world and see where's the place of brokenness? Where are people overlooked? Where are people marginalized? Where's the hurt and the pain and the brokenness? How do I pray for that? How do I use the ways that I've been blessed to be a blessing to other people? We are not called to sit under the oaks of Mamre and just chill out. We are called to be a committed people sent on this mission to bring about this mishpat, this flourishing, this peace, this justice. This weekend, uh, my wife is out of town, so I've basically been a disaster for multiple days on end. Um, and at 10 o'clock Friday night, when everything within me was like, dude, you're old, just go to bed, um, I was like, no, nah, I'm gonna watch a movie, all right? Um, and, uh, and it was like a two and a half hour movie, um, and I, did, I didn't make it through. Um, and it was actually a fascinating film. I had never seen this before. It's been out for over a decade. It's a film simply entitled Lincoln. And it's this Daniel Day Lewis plays Abraham Lincoln. It's a, a wonderful film. And one of the things that just stands out, if you've ever studied the life of Abraham Lincoln, um, and I wasn't just watching because his name's Abraham, but that's a good tie-in here, all right? Um, and, uh, and over and over, it's set. Civil war is, is going. Country is just completely torn up. And you see, you see Abraham Lincoln's commitment. He's already declared the Emancipation Proclamation, but he's really worried that after the war ends and there's a treaty and things, reconstruction begins to happen, he's really concerned that that won't hold up, that somebody even in a court of law might be able to say, you actually didn't have the right to do that. And so there has been this amendment, Amendment 13, that would basically abolish slavery in this, this country. And so his entire focus, and that's what the, the, the film centers on, is that the days leading up to the Senate has already voted in, but the House of Representatives, it needs to pass there. And he's going to need to actually get those that are on the opposite side across party lines to actually come over so that this thing can get done. Because things are so much different back then than they are now, right? Um, and so there's this, this movement throughout, and he's, you just see his commitment. It's a man who, right, I mean, he could have been like, I know there's a war raging, the White House is nice. They're going to name this bedroom after me, right? Like, it's a good place. I could just chill out. Oaks of Mamre, why don't I just say? But, but what you see repeatedly, even his willingness to go and just be among the people, to be near the battle, all of that. And then he is just so hyper-focused on making sure this amendment, like there's, there's something that's welling up in him. And there's this quote, that uh, um, as I was just... It, so I should have gone to bed after the movie. Now I'm like looking up things about Abraham Lincoln, things that maybe I'd forgotten about, things I'm reading up on, and ran across this quote, um, and perhaps you've heard this, and I just thought, wow, what a profound statement and how convicting this is. He says this, you can tell the greatness of a man by what makes him angry. You can tell the greatness of a man or a woman by what makes them angry. If that is true, and I believe it is, I am not a great man. Some of you are like, yeah, that's obvious. But anyway, um, I get angry when my will, when Jamie's will is not being done. It could be as stupid as getting angry in traffic or allowing that person to merge. And they, were, they do not 
acknowledge my kindness with a wave, like, right? Like, whatever it is. Some of you are like, yeah, you're my people. All right, anyway. Um, it, it could be, I want to go to this restaurant, and the rest of the family doesn't want to go to it, or we're going to watch this show. I mean, it, just any number of, of silly, mundane things. But if my will is blocked, I get angry about self. But what this quote is talking about is there's a righteous anger. When we see something that is not right, where it is unjust, when something needs to be set right, that there would be this anger, a righteous anger that would well up. Like we see this in the life of Jesus when on the Sabbath, they're like, is he gonna heal the man with a withered hand? And it says, in anger, he reached out and he healed the man. Like Jesus' anger leads to more healing and restoration and peace. Mine, my anger is rooted in selfishness and leads to more dissolution and just chaos. But there is a type of anger, and that's what Lincoln was talking about. You see it throughout the film. He is angry over what's taking place in the country. He is angered by the fact that slavery exists, and he is doing what is in his power, the responsibilities he has, the privileges that he has, to leverage those things in any way that he can. He's not sitting under the oaks of Mamre. He's moving. And the call for us is, will we use whatever it is that God brings to mind? What are the things you look at and it makes you angry? Not in a self-righteous sense, but in a, like, that's broken. How can we as the church be a blessing? So what, what you see here with, now back to Abram, is there's this two sides of the same coin of faith and action. He doesn't have this faith and trust in God where he's just like, all right, I'm just gonna chill out and wait here. And yeah, if God wants to rescue Lot, God will rescue Lot. It's not my deal, Right? No, no, he intervenes, not because he's God, not because he has a savior complex, but because, as the scriptures teach, God, who gives us faith, also God is the one who ordains the means by which restoration and justice would come about. It's ultimately God is at work, and it's God's strength. And there are times that God tells his people, you only have to sit back and watch. And so we need to be dialed into the Holy Spirit. There will be situations, I'm sure, where God's gonna say, not yet, not now, you just sit and watch. I see it. I'm well aware. I'm going to bring about justice, but it's, it's not for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flex and demonstrate my strength by you doing nothing. And then there are times, though, where God, more often than not, it seems like, hey, love your neighbor. Engage. Be the church that have called you to be, not just as isolated individuals, but like together. Do you notice even Abram takes the men that he's covenanted with? And they go in the 318. This is not Abram on his own, right? Like, I'm going to take it on the world. No, people moving together. Showcases, I mean, what's the church? A group of people that have been covenanted together to be on this mission, to love God and to love our neighbor. James would put it this way in the New Testament. For brother or sisters without clothes, lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Hey, brother, go in peace, stay warm, and be well-fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Our good works don't earn the love and affection of God. There's nothing here where Abram has to go rescue Lot to prove his allegiance. That's, that's not it. But Abram, under the oaks of Mamre, with great cluster man and these covenanted friends to get like all of this is like, oh, I have been blessed in order to be a blessing. But I think if I'm there 
And what rightfully belonged to me was the first choice of the land. And then my nephew Lot goes and takes and sees through the lens of self rather than service. Perhaps something like the equivalent of whatever this phrase would have been in ancient times. Well, he made his own bed, let him lie in it. Yep, they captured Lot. Lot, you chose. You chose Sodom. You moved near Sodom. Then you went and lived in Sodom. This is on you. Tough love, man. I read a book one time, talked about that, right? Like that, that could be like the mindset. But I think it's worth asking the question, like what if Jesus had said that to us? Because the truth of the matter is this, I did make my bed and it's a mess and I deserve to lie in it. But again, the storyline of the Bible is a God who would come to us, who have made a mess of everything, who are dead in our sin and our, and our transgressions, who have rebelled, who have committed treason against the one true God, God sends his son to enter in and say, I'll die in your place. I'll fix that up. That is your bed and you deserve to lie in it, but I'm gonna lie in it in your place so that I can restore you to be in my presence so that you in turn can be a blessing to other people. Kent Hughes in his commentary on the book of Genesis says this, take note that this brave heart, this great heart was at this very moment like that of Jesus. As Abram was to Lot, so Christ is to us. Jesus did not sit idly by in heaven waiting for us to deserve redemption. Neither was our redemption painless. Christ left the glories of heaven to come after us. Or as Paul would write in Romans chapter five, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died. For the spiritually mature, for those that have attained, that had a good track record, no, for the ungodly. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so the more that grips our hearts, the more we will lean into a love of God that showcases itself in a number of ways, one of which is that we would be a people who see what's not right and set to make it right, that we would pursue and seek after justice. That's what's taking place with Abram and Lot. The contrast there, I mean, Lot could not have descended further. Abram's living the life of blessing, and he moves toward Lot to bring about rescue. I mean, what a picture of the gospel. That is what Christ has done for us. And so as this passage comes to a close then, there's some stuff as if the names weren't confusing enough. Now there's a mysterious figure that appears by the name of Melchizedek. And we don't have the time to get into all of this, but I want to close with a couple things. Because I think if we understand what's going on in these closing verses, it will, it's what will fuel the confidence to move forward as the church into this calling to love God. And part of loving God is leaving our places of comfort to go be committed to loving our neighbor. But we need this sort of confidence. We need a word spoken, a reminder of who we are, a blessing that's spoken over us. And again, we're seeing one of these things in here, like there's the danger of success. Abram could have said, cool, look what I did. I'm gonna keep all these possessions, but let's notice again another contrast. So it tells us as we look back over verses 17 to 24, you know, he returns, he's got all the, you know, he's got all the goods and the possessions, everything seemingly re restored, right? There's two different leaders, two different kings that show up. And the king of Sodom, it tells us this as we read the account, said to Abram, all right, hey, give me the people, like the people that you rescued, give them back to me, but take the possessions for yourself. 
And here is a moment where Abram's faced with the decision. Huh, yeah, maybe you're right. Will he see with the eye, kind of the lenses of self or is he gonna continue seeing with like the lenses of faith, being able to, no, no, no. Remember, like Lot, what, what took him away, like his movement away from God. Now this same king, the king of Sodom shows up. He's like, yeah, man, take the possessions. This king didn't show up thanking Abram for what he had done, all right? He's just trying to like get his. He didn't show up like, Melchizedek's the friend you want. Shows up with bread and wine. Like that's a good friend right there, right? Shows up with just this, this feast. And so Abram says to him, with just a great response in verse 22, I've actually raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Like, let it be known who the real God is, the real king. King of Sodom, it's not you. I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so that you can never say I made Abram rich. Abram's confidence is not in these sort of earthly provisions and, and these possessions. His confidence comes from who he is in God, that the God of the universe has rescued him. And so the contrast then is seen in this other figure. We'll talk about more just briefly here in a moment. But Melchizedek, this one, this king of Salem shows up. He brings bread and wine, and then we get these words, this word of blessing that's spoken over him. Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. I love that. Melchizedek's like, Abram, you are blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, all right? But let's, let's be mindful, right? The enemies were handed over to you. You didn't earn this. I know you trained the 318 men. You might have gone out and thought you were all that, but just let's be mindful, you have been blessed by God. And all praise and glory and honor needs to be redirected back to God. And it tells us this, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This tithe of all kind of the, the possessions, the plunder that's been taken in. This is a way of acknowledging. Like if you're the superior in the relationship, you don't give a tenth to the one that is beneath you, right? This is clearly saying, oh, this king, there's something about this king that is different. There's something about this king. And so Abram, when he gives a tenth, it's a way of saying, I affirm what you say. I've been blessed by God, and God deserves all praise. Like, this is the story that I'm part of. And I am so thankful for that word that you're speaking because he knows the solution is not to look inward, and the solution is not to look to all the little trinkets out in the world that are vying for attention. The calling is to look to the words that God speaks, that God blesses us, that God gives us a new name. Where are you looking? Where is your confidence coming from? Is it from you or even what other people say? It's not bad to be built up by other people, but if you're putting your hope in that, what happens if the accolades stop? But God always speaks a word of blessing. And he does it here to Abram, and Abram is saying, I affirm that, that's, that's the story. So when faced with a choice, the way of Sodom or the way of Melchizedek, he's like, no, I'm, I'm in with this king whose name and location means the king of righteousness and of peace. And so for the last couple minutes here, because I think there's, it's so profound and we don't have time to dive into all of it, but there's some really beautiful things that I think if we understand what's going on here thousands of years ago in Genesis 14 with this mysterious figure named Melchizedek that shows up, right? Because it's like, well, who's this guy? I think it'll help us understand and have a confidence in what we know. 
Because we know more of the story than, than Abram did. So Melchizedek, his name, location, right? King of peace and righteousness. For the Jewish people, down through history, there was then this expectation, this, this hope that this sort of figure would show up again. Go read like Psalm, uh, Psalm 110. Speak specifically of a, of a one like in the line, like a priest forever like Melchizedek. This longing for a king of righteousness, a king of peace, and a figure, a person that would bring together kingship, but also the, the priesthood. Like, who can do that? Well, what we know and what we can have confidence in is and what was at that time, theologians said, this is like a type. Like looking back, oh, there's this type of, of figure that is Melchizedek, but it's meant to point us to this deeper reality. And so the writer of Hebrews, whose mission is to let us know over and over and over again Hey, Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior. Jesus is the king. I mean, we told, told us, right, this text tells us, right, 29 times it mentions king. Well, who's the true king of peace and of righteousness? It's Jesus. So let me just highlight a few verses. You could look at numerous places in the book of Hebrews, but in chapter 7 in particular, it says this, referring to Melchizedek. The author's looking back and says, first, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. The lights on the dashboard should start to be going off right now. Like, huh, who else do we know that's a king of righteousness, a true king of peace, who has no beginning of days and no end of life? And rather than resembling a son of God, actually is the Son of God, who remains a priest forever. That's why this is being laid out here. It's like, the, let this point you to Jesus. A few verses later in 15 to 17, it says, this becomes clearer. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on legal regulation, like the Levites were the normal priests, right? It's like, oh, this family, and you come from this line, about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. The one who was crucified, dead, Buried, and three days later conquered Satan's sin and death, an indestructible life. What makes Jesus worthy of all praise? Why he's the true king of peace and of righteousness because of what he's done. For it has been testified, and here quoting Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That Jesus is the long-awaited one to bring peace and righteousness. When you realize that that's the king that you're worshiping and that's the king that calls you a son or daughter, it gives us all the confidence in the world. So it says this, a couple more passages. We keep going through chapter seven of Hebrews. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office, right? You just need more. Like, well, that guy died, we gotta have another one, right? But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him and he always lives to intercede for them. I know why Jesus is greater, why Jesus is the true king, why Jesus is deserving of our worship. Right there, he is saved completely, every last aspect. He saw the injustices, he saw the brokenness, and he did something about it. And now, right now, as we're gathered here, this particular morning of March 6, 2022, like Jesus right now is interceding for you. What confidence to know that. He's interceding on your behalf. This is our high priest, but it gets even better. 
because this priest would actually become the sacrifice. We'll close with this, Hebrews 7, 26 to 27. For this is the kind of high priest we need. We need one who's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as the high priests do, first for their own sin and then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. So this passage and this invitation to be the kinds of people that would pursue justice and righteousness only happens because the great priest and king that is Jesus became the sacrifice that he willingly died in your place. The bed that we had made, what you and I deserve, he took. And then not only that, he gave us his righteousness so that when God the Father looks at you and me, he doesn't see the misfit and the mess up and you should have done better and this and all of our rebellion and treason. He sees the faithfulness of his son, Jesus, the king of righteousness and of peace. And when that grips our hearts, it's in that place that we're actually able to be the people that God has called us to be and to love God. And so in just a moment, we're gonna respond and one of the ways we'll do that is through the cup and the bread, right? The bread and wine. It's this beautiful picture of where our confidence comes from. It's nothing we've earned. Like Melchizedek just showing up to give a blessing to Abram. This is a meal that reminds us of the blessing that God has given us in his son and the new identity that we have. So take a moment as I pray for us. Ask the spirit to lead you in repentance. Where are the places maybe where it's like, oh yeah, I'm angry. I'm not angry in a, in a great way. I'm angry in a selfish way. And let's remember what Christ has done for us. And let's rejoice together in the confidence that we have of this God who pursues us. And then I'll give us further instructions on how we'll continue in the service, but let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your ever-present mercy and grace, your kindness toward us. Thank you for this text that has lots of confusing names and locations and things that we can't fully wrap our mind around. I, I still, God, I thank you that you're showcasing for us what it looks like to live in just a glad surrender to you as the one true king. That's where life is found. Not us sitting in the places of comfort, kick back, but in joining you in your mission for the renewal of all things. You do not need us, but you've chosen to work in and through us as your church, and we are so thankful for that. So Holy Spirit, lead us in repentance right now of the ways that we have lived selfishly rather than in service to others, the ways that we have failed to love you, God, but then apply the comfort of the gospel. Help us to remember that Jesus, you're that, you are that perfect offering, that you died in our place, that we could have this new life that we could do the good works that you prepared beforehand, that we could walk in them. What joy that is. So thank you for the privilege it is to belong to your family, to your church. God, would you use us for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.